the S&P 500 would plunge a little bit with it just because if something's going down, there must be something wrong. It's a bunch. It's kind of like chickens. You scare one chicken, you've scared the whole flock. But the S&P 500 seems to have uh, broken its lock on looking at things to be afraid of and inched up a little bit for the week. So you're saying now it's a different type of fowl. We can cry fowl here because these may be turkeys instead of chickens. I think it's more like turkeys. Yeah. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McClure. I've said my really powerful radio voice, probably the only time I'll be using it today. Now I'll go back well, to... Well, you could always speak like this. I think you're supposed to say the day of the week three times, preferably a Sunday, before using your radio voice properly. You can't say Saturday, Saturday, Saturday. Just doesn't have the same ring to it. And yeah, I think you have to throw in the word monster trucks at some point as well if you're really into using a good radio voice. This is not your typical monster truck rally, though, folks. This is the personal wealth coach, and we are going to talk to you today about finance, the economy, economics, behavior, uh, how to look at your retirement, and how to look at the national budget. It's a big spectrum. Hopefully we'll cover it well. If you wish to hear pithy and witty commentary on sports, you have come to the wrong place because Amen. we we will give you uh, the least informed, maybe the most comical uh, answers on sports. It's kind of like asking someone from Nigeria about the prices in Minnesota. You will get very interesting answers. They won't be right. But when How it comes to the economy, Minnesota? how much is a Minnesota? Um, it, it's a little soda. It's very small, um, which means you'll only pay $5 at the machine for them these days. That makes sense. Uh, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we have to tell you some about oh, who we are and what we're doing. These are called disclosures because we are dissing our closures. We're sense. opening our clothes. That's a flasher. Yes, we're going to flash you all on the radio. <laughs> the Personal Wealth Coach is not just the name of this hopefully entertaining, not too mildly boring uh, inter radio program. It is also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. It is? It is. It's not coincidental because the two people that run that firm are the two people that are the hosts on this program. The only reason why we're telling you this is to tell you that the radio program is not investment advice. Investment advice is a fiduciary. It is intended specifically for either an individual or a group that is working together with privacy restrictions. And fiduciary advice means we actually have to really know the person that we're talking to and customize the advice to that person. We can't do that on the radio. Well, we could, but it would be violating all the privacy rules if we were giving specific advice to any of you. So what we're doing instead is education. We're trying to give you the tools to make decisions when it comes to the economy. 
Uh, it, we're, we're hopefully giving you some of our expertise and, and education so that when difficult financial decisions come up, you at least know to where, where to begin to answer them. Now, I also said in the middle of that that the personal wealth coach outside of this radio program is a register, registered with the SEC. The SEC doesn't give any kind of approval when you register with them. That is, that is not how it's like going to the DMV and saying, they have approved me. No, they haven't. They can disapprove you. They can say you can't do something or you have the license to do something. They don't say, yep, we agree with his driving all the time. No, the government doesn't do it that way. The SEC doesn't give approvals. They're not giving us some kind of an endorsement. We say we're registered with the SEC so that you know who to complain to if you need to complain. Though, you could complain to us too. We, we take criticism fairly well. We only cry for so. no more than five minutes. You want to take the next disclosure? Uh, the other thing I wanted to say is the information we pre- the educational information we present on this radio program has been obtained. I love this has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable. I love that. It's the only time we get to use deem all week. However, we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information or or unsaid information. We well, really make no warranty of the completeness to the information we don't say. Yes. Uh, the un- the unsaid information is totally incomplete. But we can leave that unsaid. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Needless to say, well, then why, and, did, why did you say it? And if you'd like to contact us on the air and let us know your thoughts or comments or have something you'd like us to talk about, you're certainly welcome to do so. You can contact us either jake at tpwc.com or Jeff at tpwc.com. That's Tango Papa Whiskey Charlie. And we will try to respond to, we will endeavor, that's we should use the word endeavor here, endeavor to respond to your email on the air. So Jake or Jeff at tpwc.com. You can send it to both of us, and that way more likely one of us will actually see it, not fall asleep while we're trying to read our email. Right. If, if we're both looking at it, you've got twice the opportunity for it to get missed. You see what I did so what, there with the so, statistics thing? It's great. Yeah. Or try twice the opportunity for it to be seen. It all depends on whether the glass is half empty or half full. Yeah, that, see, I, I messed up statistics there. And this is a nice little bit. We're going to get to the markets here for a second. But if you have two intelligent people, well, I should say, let, let me rephrase that. If you have two people checking their emails, you have twice the opportunity for it to be seen. But because each of us in very rare moments don't look at emails, you also have twice the opportunity for it to be missed. But the opportunity to be seen grew exponentially greater than the opportunity to be missed. You can tell we're economists, can't you? Just On the other hand. Uh, yes. Uh, that's FDR's famous quote, all I want is a one-handed economist. Yep. There you go. Uh, th- I don't think they exist. We're not minted that way. And economists are not made, they're minted. And now you you can tell us what happened in the market this week. Well, the market went up. That's it? Yeah. That didn't go up very much, but it went up. The S&P 500, otherwise affectionately known as the SPX, which is the index we follow because it covers more stocks than does the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Uh, I closed out the week and the month, coincidentally. I noticed that that was an interesting coincidence on Friday. It was the end of the market week, and it was the end of the market month. 
at 4201.11. So you can remember that. That was the end of, you can write that down somewhere and say at the end of May, the S&P 500 was at 4201.11. You notice That'll be easy to remember. Most people don't do that. They tend to use round numbers. There's nothing yeah. significant about a round number except that it has zeros in it. But people tend to remember round numbers better than they tend to remember not round numbers. Strange. Yep. Well, the market was up 1.16. The S&P 500 representing the market was up 1.16% for the week and over half a percent for the month, um, which means it was down during the month, which it was. Back at the beginning of the month, it peaked out. And it's only, this is very... I think important to recognize at this point is only 0.67% below its record high on the 7th. It's risen for the past four consecutive months, which has no statistical meaning whatsoever, but it sounds nice. Uh, it's up 11.93% year to date, which is good. If it were to go up at this rate for the rest of the year, at the same rate it's gone up in the first five months of the year, it'd be up like 30% for the year, which I don't think is going to happen, which means somewhere along the line, we're going to get some disappointment. Interestingly, though, the index now seems to be immune from panics in the crypto coin market. Bitcoin is now down 50% from its high in mid-April. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait, I have the time out there. Crypto coin market? You sound like a boomer. What's it called? Cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrency market? Yeah. Yeah. Because the boomers are the ones that they keep doing the whole crypto coin thing. And if, if you want to stand out in a group of cryptocurrency guys or gals call them crypto coins. It's kind of like saying the interweb just, I mean, it's, it's true. Okay. We do have an interweb. We do. It's just not what most people call it. Oh, well, the cryptocurrency market there you go. is down. And Bitcoin, which is the primary cryptocurrency traded on the cryptocurrency market, is down about 50% for its high in mid-April. Whereas the market is down 0.67, the stock market is down 0.67%, which tells you a lot about cryptocurrencies right there. See, right. I use cryptocurrencies. I'm cool. Yeah. It, well, no, actually, if you wanted to be really cool, you you would just say crypto. But crypto neither of us... Something completely different to me. Neither of us ever really try to be really cool. So you don't have to worry about it. But the, all the crypto folks are saying crypto. Have you checked out the cryptos this week? So... There you go. Crypto means encoded information. Well, that's what cryptocurrencies are. Okay. Yeah, they're they're encoded information that we call currency for some reason. Which is a whole subject of discussion we can get into. <laughs> yeah. How they would make really lousy currencies. How would you like to have the dollar fluctuating by 50% in a month's time in value? That would be really interesting. Yeah, that wouldn't be very fun. Not fun at all. Anyway, Earlier in the month, when the cryptocurrency market, say I got it right, when the cryptocurrency market would experience a plunge, the S&P 500 would plunge a little bit with it, just because if something's going down, there must be something wrong. It's a bunch. It's kind of like chickens. You scare one chicken, you've scared the whole flock. But the S&P 500 seems to have uh, broken its lock on looking at things to be afraid of and inched up a little bit for the week. So you're saying now it's a different type of fowl. We can cry foul here because these may be turkeys instead of chickens. I think it's more like turkeys. Yeah. Anyway, and we always look at the um, other end of the market. The Dow, the S&P 500 is primarily dominated by large cap growth stocks. That's really large capitalization means there's a lot of money invested in them and their growth, meaning their price according to their expected future growth. 
and it tends they tend during a bull market the s p 500 tends to be dominated by these large cap large capitalization growth stocks at the other end of the s p 500 is mid cap value why did we not select small cap value to look at because it's not in the s p 500 they're not big enough so let's look at mid cap value the crsp mid cap value index closed at 28 2482.32. Now it's up 1.03% for the week, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but it's up more for the year. It's 21% up. It's, it's risen 21% this year versus 11.93 for the S&P 500. It indicates that the rotation from large cap growth to smaller cap value is underway and continues to be functional, uh, which is a geeky sort of thing, but it's important if you're an investor. 10-year treasury note yield, which is where we look to see a lot of things. Uh, there's Inflation headlines are big during the week, which is why the market dipped on Wednesday. The infl- we'll talk about the presumed, what, produced, no, the cost index. What was the PCE <laughs> came out during the week? Whatever it is. First, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to have to look that Personal up. Personal consumer expenditure Consumption index. expenditures, yeah. Consumption came out during the week, which is a really good indication of what prices are doing. And it was up like three point something percent from last year, and up 0.6 percent from last month, which made a lot of headlines. But if you thought if inflation was really something to be afraid of, the yield on the U.S. Treasury note would rise because people don't want to buy a low interest Treasury note for 10 years now, and see inflation get higher than the a lot higher than the interest rate on the Treasury note. Well, it is anyway. But anyway, that's beside the point. They just won't do it, and you'll see it there. But the Treasury note yield actually slipped, actually declined, which indicates a couple of things. When the when the Treasury note yield declines, it means a lot of people are buying Treasury notes. There's more buying power. There's more dollars being used to buy Treasury notes than there are to sell them. That causes the yield to go down, and the yield dropped to 1.584 uh, percent. Every time the yield slips up just a little bit, gets up above 1.6 buyers come in and start buying them and force the interest rate back down again, which should tell you a couple of things. Number one, those people who are spending literally billions and sometimes hundreds of billions of dollars buying treasury notes don't particularly think there's going to be any serious inflation in the future. And the second thing is they're buying dollars and they're buying treasury notes. Uh, To give you an example, the 10-year uh, the equivalent 10-year note in Germany is yielding a negative 0.5%, which people people basically say there's not a lot of economic future going on, growth going on in Germany. Ultra short-term rates are kind of interesting this this week around. We can talk about that if somebody wants to talk about it. Give us again Jeff or Jake at tbwc.com and we can talk about it. Ultra short-term rates are actually below zero. You go out and look at the maturity dates and the prices on U.S. Treasury securities. Uh, you see the through October, all of the yields are negative numbers. So we're getting a little bit of negative interest rate now in terms of the Fed's short-term interest rates and the Fed's short-term loaning rates to banks. It's still positive, barely positive, uh, as low as 0.006, but still it's positive. But for some reason or another, for the next six months, the bond the treasury bond market is apparently forecasting deflation over the next six months which is weird uh, i haven't figured that one out yet it's bit over my head uh there's a lot of the bottom line to it is there's a lot of cash continuing to seek short-term safe havens yield curve 
which is a good indication of where the economy is going over the next year or two, is still quite steep. The 30-year Treasury is yielding 2.264, which is relatively high yield when compared with zero, below zero in the short term, and compared with the 1.584 for the uh, 10-year. And so the yield curve is saying it looks like a good ceiling ahead. And finally, West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil ended the work week at $66.63, up 4.5% for the week. And that's not up on a shortage of crude oil being produced. That's up on increasing demand. And if you've been, again, if you've been out on I-35, you can see why the price of oil and fuel is going up. And that's the market. All right. Well, we have some really good questions lined up. Four exceptionally good questions. We've got two from John and two from Roger. Uh, the first uh, question from John, are vo- value stocks in the Dow by design or coincidence? And he, as is, as per usual, has a picture of the Wall Street Journal that he took probably from his phone, the paper version, to make it digital version, and then emailed it on with a, with a circle around it. Uh, and the circle is around, uh, it's talking about the, uh, the lead uh, between the Dow Jones Industrial Average versus the S&P 500. The, the Dow was up 20, 12%, while the NASDAQ was up 6%. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, it, 12% is slightly ahead of the S&P 500, where it's way ahead of the NASDAQ. Uh, the, the circle says that lead is partially because the Dow is a hefty representation of value stocks, which trade at low multiples of book value, and have outperformed growth stocks recently. Okay, so his question is, are the value stocks in there intentionally? The, the, is, how is it, I, I, I'm gonna extrapolate a question from this, why and how is the, the Dow designed? Which is a, a bit of a long-winded answer. Shocking, I know, coming from the McClure's. Long-windedness, what, you guys? Yeah, yeah, we're a little long-winded sometimes. Let me kind of go back to, why the Dow Jones Industrial Average exists and how it's kind of designed. What indexes are in general? Because we get this fairly regularly. People talk about the S&P, people talk about the Dow and the NASDAQ, and you're just supposed to say, oh, well, yeah, of course, it's the Dow. It's it's this number that people say all the time. What is it? What is this thing? Well, back in the 19th century, uh, mid to late 19th century, 1896. It, it was before that. There was a newsletter that was out ah, that right. was in the 1870s um, that Charles Dow was putting out. It was just a newsletter letting his uh, the people in, in his vicinity know what was going on in, in the marketplace. And, and the marketplace at that point was just almost as much livestock as company stock. This is, this is how far back we're going there. Literally had livestock auctions right there at the wall as well. Just think of that. Think of Wall Street and take a nice whiff. Yep, that's Wall Street. That's, that's what you're smelling right there. Okay, so he's trying to explain to his readers what happened in the market. And everybody at this point is just sending out, here's how much this stock traded for and this stock. And you've got these long lists of stocks that traded. Here's the opening price. Here's the closing price. Here's how high it got in the middle of the day. Oh, that's a nice little piece. We'll put that in there too. 
but you don't have any headline material except for individual companies. Can you imagine trying to write a headline every day? Find a company that did something different so we can put a headline in there. It's not very representative of the overall market. So for the newsletter, they started taking a group of the largest companies that they could find and combining them and averaging their movement. So you could say a large group of stocks did this thing. And it was kind of earth-shaking at the time. It was groundbreaking. Nobody had done a stock average before. You'd only ever had stocks. So you didn't get headlines. And who would want to read a headline anyway? Who in, in you know Main Street, Minnesota is going to care what happened to stocks in Manhattan? Come on. There's livestock trading here too. Why do we, why do we even care? This is part of the reason why people started caring, because when you start averaging stocks together, you can start saying what happened in the market rather than just, I bought an orange at the market. This is what oranges were trading for across the board. So the largest companies at the time were railroad companies. And the Charles Dow put them together. They didn't put any kind of complexity on how they averaged the stocks. They just said they're roughly the same size and we're going to kind of kind of combine all the pieces together equally. Equal weighting, this is how much they moved. Well, in order to take that basket of stocks and average them together, if you're averaging their movement, their stock prices are all over. I mean, one of them could be for $100 and one of them could be $0.03. Cents. Uh, and at the time, three cents wasn't considered too low a, a number because inflation. Um, so you have to have an arbitrary number to start from. So the Dow Jones index, the first one, started at 10. All the indexes that were started by Dow Jones start at 10. So when we're talking about an index, the number that's quoted, that round number that makes headlines so often is only important because it started arbitrarily at the number 10. Okay, next step. Those large companies, that index, that first one, it still exists. It's called the Dow Jones Transportation Index because the largest companies in the world at that point or in the United States at that point were railroad companies. The, tra the Dow Jones Transportation Index existed. As time passed, and it did back then too, it didn't, it doesn't just pass now. It was passing back then too. And, and the, the, the news was changing. We stopped being so much an agricultural nation and, and the big companies were still quite often uh, transportation. But also quite often we were getting these new types of these tech companies, these industrial companies that were using belt-fed machines to do industrial things. And that led up into the 1920s when they started doing automobile manufacturing and tractor manufacturing and industrial stuff. Industry was born. So they made a new index for it. They called it the Dow Jones Industrial Average. They took the industrial chunks of the United States and said, we'll average these stocks together. And, and they said, we'll put 30 of them in there. And there's still 30 of them in there. They're not the same ones. And the Dow Jones Industrial Index is no longer industrial. We have all kinds of, I mean, Microsoft is in the Dow Jones Industrial Index. It's a big stretch to consider that it's still considered industrial. But it doesn't matter anymore. It's a number that we all hear and understand. 
So the question is, are value stocks in the Dow by design or coincidence? And it's kind of like saying in a, in a completely oversimplified analogy, did Ford intend for middle-aged people to drive its cars when it built its car seats, the, the cars, the seats that you sit in in the car? And you notice people get weird when you call them chairs in a car. I tell my kids, get in your chair, and they go, it's the seat, Dad. Okay, so you don't have car chairs, you have car seats. Did Ford intend middle-aged people to sit in its car seats? Well, sort of, but it was designed for like a, a broad range of people-shaped people, not just middle-aged people. So value stocks are in the Dow by design and by coincidence. It's supposed to be the 30 companies, the large companies that represent the majority of the American economy. Okay, so he had something he wanted to say. The, the idea here on the Dow is pretty simple. It's supposed to represent the economy so that when they say, uh, or the market as a whole, so when they say that the Dow is up, it should be representative of a big chunk of the nation, a big chunk of the na national market. Go ahead. Basically, there's a committee of people, and I can't find whose name is in the who's in the names of the people in the committee. Or I'd be, I'd, I suspect, I suspect it's kind of kept quiet because people would be besieging them to put their stocks in the Dow. Uh, who select the stocks that go into the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and they change fairly often. Uh, unlike the Dow Jones Transportation Average, which changes very rarely. Uh, but basically, the they just say these are the big companies that are that are well traded, that are active, that represent the biggest piece of the American economy. In their opinion, it's just a committee, and anything that's done by a committee is sort of interesting. A lot of economists and people who follow the stock market prefer to use the S and P 500 or the Russell 3000, which is a little less known, uh, because it captures a lot more that's going on out there. And sometimes they behave differently. The but the apparently the current makeup of the committee, the Dow Jones committee believes that value stocks are more representative of the economy than our growth stocks. That, that was the big issue. And, and that's a pretty good statement almost any time, any time in the history of the world or the United States is that the majority of the economy is going to be mainstream. It's going to be this concept of we own a lot of stuff and we're making a profit, but we're not doubling in size overnight. If the whole economy was doing that, we would, it, it wouldn't make sense. You can't have the whole eco economy grow at a growth rate. You know, that 40% a year type situation doesn't make sense for a real economy. Some portion of the economy does that and needs to be represented, but it's not the majority. And that's why the Dow does, includes what it does as value and what it does as growth. Uh, next question. Do you think we've answered that one fairly well? I think we've beat that dead horse pretty much fairly all the way back to death if it was trying to wake up. Fantastic. All right. Well, that was a very morbid thing for us to say fantastic about. But yes. Uh, next question, again from John. Uh, he's got an article in here. From the Wall Street Journal that says sales of bundled junk loans surge as investors seek yield. And his question is uh, how do these compare to the CDOs that caused the Great Recession? CDOs were 
those of you that that were around during the Great Recession remember collateralized debt obligations. These these ones are called collateralized loan obligations. Ah, these are completely different things. Can't you tell from the letters? There's a an L in, instead of a D in here. Um, that that simple answer is how do they compare? Well, there's a different letter in there. No, that's that is the facetious answer. Um. Do you mind if I give like a real quick you, you statement on what it no, is? Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. So the idea here is that if you loan one loan out, say you're a bank or you're just somebody that has enough money you want to loan out, and you've only got one loan out, you have concentrated your risk in one loan. If that loan does not pay, it's going to have a pretty high concentrated risk to you. If you loan to a pool and, and I don't mean a swimming pool that that's a you could make loans to swimming pools too but as a group of people put their money together and loan out to a group of different loans if one of the loans fails it's less risk to the whole pool so that premise can be taken way too far in the great recession it was taken to the point where you say if all if 100% of our loans are risky but we diversify them so thoroughly there's less risk well no not if 100% of your loans have a high chance of going under um collateralized loan obligations that we're talking about here have a higher debt rating a higher like credit score if you will than uh, than the underlying bonds in them because they're diversified. That's the definitions. You want to you want to handle the specifics. Well, the important thing is to recognize the difference between mortgage obligations on people who are flipping houses, which was a Ponzi scheme to begin with. The whole thing was a Ponzi scheme. It was based on fake information and it was very non-transparent. And collateralized loan obligations, they aren't even collateralized in many cases. They're loan obligations where you bundle high-yield loans together. These are pretty darn transparent. They're, they're publicly issued loans. Uh, you can subscribe to Moody's and get lots of information on where the high-yield market is and what it's doing and who's doing what to whom and how the ratings are changing on the various companies. In almost all the companies, in almost all the cases where you've got the bundled uh, loan obligations that the article was talking about, those obligations have been rated by moody's and s p and other people and they're fairly transparent as to what's going on and the risk is acknowledged whereas the collateralized the problem with the collateralized mortgage obligations is everybody assumed they were completely safe they were triple a rated these guys are not triple a rated bonds so yeah. nobody is making the assumption that they're triple a rated and safe and so people are hedging Right. They, they, these are junk bonds that, that are the article is talking about. Collateralized loan obligations aren't always junk bonds. What is a junk bond? A junk bond is a company whose credit score, its, its credit rating, is low enough that people don't think this is investment grade. There's a high level of chance, uh, a high level of risk that they will default on the loan in some way. When you pool a bunch of these together, you can lower that risk in that if even if 20% of them fail, you didn't lose 80%. But that's still called it's still junk bonds. Nobody's saying that these are AAA rated. And that's that's kind of the point 
it's a slightly higher rating. It goes up to mildly investment grade. The whole package is mildly investment grade where everything in the package is junk. So there's additional risk and also some degree of diversification of that risk. If, if you have one junk bond that you own and it goes under, you lost 100%. If you have a pool of junk bonds and one goes under, again, you, you have not lost 100%. It's still junk bonds. So if you're buying a CLL, if you're, if you're buying some type of packaged loan obligation, understand both the credit rating of the, the package and the average credit rating of the underlying loans. These are, these are things that you should know. The other piece of this is that the size of this market is tiny compared to the collateralized mortgage obligation market that led to the Great Recession. Uh, who's exposed to it is a lot fewer, and it's much more on the open market rather than concentrated in, in large but individual banks. The, uh, the loans we're talking about, the bundled junk loans, tend to surge upward when the economy is doing really, really well, the value of them, and it tends to go down when the economy is doing poorly. Because obviously when the economy is doing poorly, the corporations that have borrowed the money are more likely to default on these loans. So it's a substitute for stocks. It's not really, they don't behave like bonds. They behave more like stocks. But they do, and people who want them want income. For some reason or other, they're hung up on the idea that they want income. So they buy it at some price. And let's just say that it's paying a 4% yield, which doesn't sound too terribly high, but it really is in this market, in this time. So let's say that the, the bundled junk loans are paying 4%. Then you get a 4% income on your money, and people are really happy with that 4% income on the money. Now, they're taking a risk. If, the market down, if there's a market downturn or the, economic, the economy turns down, that 4% could drop to 3% or 2% or they could and they above all could see that the, the resale value of the loan, the package that they bought, might be substantially lower than what they paid for it. I personally don't really understand the purpose in buying junk bonds, but I'm sure somebody does and well, would if, advocate for it. If you're really, really, really up on the research and you believe that these companies are going to make it through there for some reason, you're willing to take that risk. It's, an higher, it's a higher interest rate. So it's kind of like, this, this is probably a good way of looking at it. If you have a really good credit score, your credit card rate is going to be lower, hopefully. If you have a high interest rate on your credit cards and you have a really high credit score, you should probably get a different credit card because it doesn't make sense for you to be charged a high amount of interest. But here's a good question for you. Which is more profitable to a, to a bank, uh, a high interest or a low interest? And the answer is it's about even. You know, you hear about all the profits that get made off of the poor with these extremely high interest rate credit cards. It's profitable. But if you ask a bank if they would prefer to have a high score person or a low score person that they could charge a higher interest rate to, they generally prefer the high score person. The reason is because the profit kind of averages out. That's why the interest rates are kind of set the way they are. 
The problem is us high score persons don't borrow a lot of money. And when we have credit cards, we generally don't leave balances on them. Right. So they get paid in a different way. They also tend to buy more than other people. And so at the retailer, when they're swiping the card or when you're online and you click the buy button, the credit card company gets a, a small percentage of that transaction. So the, the profits average out. It's not just the interest rate where they make the money. It's also what they charge to the, to the seller, the retailer. When you're looking at high yield loans, the reason why they're high yield, that should all average out. If you take all of the failures out of the, out of the picture and, and you just look at what was left at the end of it, what was left at the end of it all, it should all average out to roughly the same percentage. You can get lucky though if you have a high interest loan package and they all make it through for whatever reason, you can make a lot more money. And that's why a lot of people do it. You can also lose a lot more money if things go the other direction. So it's kind of a bet. If you'd like to ask us a question, we're taking emails in here. The email addresses that we are reading are jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. That's Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie, or The Personal Wealth Coach. And we'll be back on the other side of these very important announcements. And we're back with more of the personal wealth coach. And we have more questions. Uh, probably more questions than answers. How's that? Uh, Roger sent in. You should have gotten Roger's questions. Uh, Roger, the first question I think should be a really good one for you. Did you guys come up with the deem statement on your own or was it originally penned by an attorney? I'm say? sure it was originally pinned by an attorney. It's just that I've seen it in so many publications. I'm just quoting it. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's, it's, it's written in 19th century English, so it's obviously attorney talk. They, you know, the attorneys, attorneys and doctors, when they start speaking in a way that is in archaic English or in Latin, you know you're in trouble. Yeah, it's kind of like when your mom uses your middle name when she's calling yeah. you. Yeah, that, that's, you're, you got some issues coming. All right, second question. On a more serious note, that was very serious, Roger. We we take that thing, that deeming, we deem that statement to be very serious. We deem it so. Uh, on a more serious note, did the Texas legislature accomplish anything substantial to fix the problem with our electric grid? Easy answer? You, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> they almost the lobbyists. Did. The lobbyists were swarming the legislature saying, don't mess with our profits. It's a free market system. Let us do what we want to do. Here's what happened. We got a bill passed through the Senate and the House. It went to conference. It didn't make it as a final bill. The reason why it didn't make it as a final bill, you, that could be left up to the imagination. Uh, a lot of the bills in, in Texas, it's difficult to get laws passed. We still pass a lot of laws, but it's difficult to get laws passed. I kind of like that it's difficult to get laws passed, except in cases where I want a law passed. But I think everybody could say that. So in this case, we wanted a law passed. We had Senate Bill 3. 
and uh, it and I can't remember which house bill it was. They went to conference over it. Basically, was saying we need to weatherize the power grid. Uh, Warren Buffett participated in the legislature this year in Texas because he wanted to introduce a concept where uh, Berkshire Hathaway built power plants that were intended not to turn on. The only reason they would turn on would be in cases like what happened, that it's like the insurance portion of the grid. And it's a pretty good plan. Parts of that were included in the bills that passed. The end of the legislative session this time around was uh, a lot of the bills that were slated to be passed did not get passed because uh, there were filibuster after filibuster. Some of the laws that were going to be passed were extremely not liked by the Democrats. So they did the poison pill to basically every bill that was left out there and said no to everything. And I, you can, it's easy to point at the Democrats and say they did that this time, but the Republicans do this too. They do this regularly. So it's just a normal trick that's used at the legislature. There's another aspect to the power grid issue that came up during Snowmageddon that I don't think a lot of people are aware of, and that is the fact that when the power goes out, the power company plant requires external power to work. Now, that sounds kind of weird, but it does. It can't work without external power. So when the power goes out, power plant that is in that area where the power goes out, on many cases, shuts down. That was one of the problems we ran into. But it has reserved power plants, many power plants around it, that are designed to crank up in an emergency situation using diesel generators or whatever to get enough power back into the electric plant that generates power to get it running again. And about 20% of those failed to start. Again, again, for the same reason everything else happened, it was just too cold. And they just weren't, they hadn't been started in cold weather and they weren't ready for cold weather. And that was one of the things that was urgently needed to be addressed and was not addressed at all. Uh, of course, the other thing was the power, the power companies, in many cases, in the process of shutting down the power to a lot of areas, and there's rolling blackouts that were kind of rolling and stopping on top of various areas, shut off power to gas companies and gas drillers, people who needed to produce the gas for the power companies to generate power, which kind of shot themselves in the foot, but that's just the way it was. Yeah. There is no, there is no legislature at present to fix that. It's just left up to the free. We, Texas is a free enterprise market in power. Very, very, it's the most deregulated power market in the United States. And we left it that way. And it's a matter of ideology that we want a deregulated power market. That's very efficient, very profitable the companies and it is very profitable for the companies it's the most profitable power market in the united states and it's also, also not the cheapest for for individuals it is one of the cheapest electric markets for businesses in the country it is near the top 15 percent as far as price on the personal side for the country we pay a lot more for electricity in Texas than other people do, despite the fact we have an abundance of natural gas and everything that's working because we have a free enterprise power market and the free enterprise power market is going to charge as much as they can. So it sounds like we're bad mouthing free enterprise. Let, let me kind of say the things that were set up to occur in these legislative acts could still happen. Uh, it, you know, we, when we talk over this, Freeze apocalypse, the 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 ice apocalypse of Texas. 
a, a lot of major companies are bankrupt now because of this. And if, if you're an electric power decision maker listening to this, it's a really good idea to really think about what happened there. Because if you don't want to be bankrupt at some point, if this happens again, you need to build this into the system. That's what we're hoping comes out of this. I, I really don't like that the only solution would be through the legislature. That's that's really not a good methodology. It's kind of like if if you've got a a steel manufacturing facility that got shut down because of your boiler plant blew up. If you want to be a profitable steel manufacturing facility, you should probably make sure your boiler plant doesn't blow up. And that's what we're hoping comes out of this. This, you know, what we had before is we hadn't ever had the ice apocalypse before. Hopefully, there's enough people in their own self-interest, enough of these companies will weatherize because they don't want to lose money. Now, on the other, on the other hand, it could be another fifty years, like it was this time. 1982 was the last time we had weather like this. It wasn't quite as bad in 1982. So, do you really want to? Does a company really want to spend a lot of money for something that happens every 40 or 50 years? And the answer is probably not because their time horizon is a lot shorter than that. Right. So th that's what we're looking at here is if the legislature comes in and says, you must do this and it prevents us from getting new power plants because they're more expensive to make now, that's a danger. On the other hand, oh, what's that thing about one-handed economists? Yeah. Yep. So... I would prefer for the market to fix this, but it will mean voluntarily paying more money for your power because it costs money to weatherize. And if it's already, if we're already in a place where it's expensive and they don't want to lose their profits, they have to charge it somehow. Or they could go back to the situation that the rest of the country has where the prices are regulated. Yeah. And that's... I mean, that's not as effective long-term for the manufacturer of power. The long-term benefit to Texas is that it's, there's a, good, a, a much better incentive to come up with ways of being more competitive here. Now, we, had a, we have a thing going in the market where the competition isn't as good as I would like it to be. They're, they're more competing into, as in the upper end rather than the lower end on power unless you're talking about business prices. The business price side, this isn't regulated in a different way, but businesses make better decisions when they're selecting their power companies. Uh, when we as a business select where we're going to get our power, we have somebody spend about a week comparing prices before we make a decision. I almost guarantee that that does not happen in most households. How's that? Probably true. We're almost out of time for this hour. We are. Each so, hour does that. Yeah. You that, notice that? Yeah. It just uh, picks up on you and runs out of time. If we can fill every hour with 60 minutes of words spoken, well, that we can do. That we can do. Uh, all right. So do you want to wrap up this hour before we go on to the next? Well, the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the S&P 500 rose a moderate amount, and they're within point. Well, the S&P 500 is within 0.67 percent of its record high, so it's in good shape. The economy's on a roll. We'll get, we'll get into that more. And everything seems to be running along pretty well, copacetically, even if it is unusual. And if you'd like to contact us off the air, 
we do provide fiduciary investment advice to people of higher net worth. And our telephone number locally is 254-947-1111. There's a real live people during the week and voicemail during the weekend. You can reach that same line toll free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com when there's podcasts, there's radio programs going back lots of years. There's newsletters you can sign up for or read. Uh, you can contact us through the contact form or directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next hour, this is the Personal Wealth Coach.